Hello, everyone, and welcome to Working in the Weeds, a podcast from the UFIFA Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. My name is Jay Farrell, the director and co-host, and with me, as always, Christine Krebs. Hi, everybody. So, Christine, tell the listeners what we're talking about today. Yeah, so we've actually gotten a lot of feedback from you all with some common questions that we hear either in, you know, from biologists that um, have interactions in the field or from your submissions through our um, website or through the podcast, and then, of course, at these public meetings, right? And so we thought, you know what, what a better place to start addressing some of these common questions than on the podcast. And so today's episode is dedicated to this larger concept of muck and it accumulating in lakes. Why is it necessary? What do we do about it? What does it look like scientifically? Um, How can we understand it? So, Yeah, it's always funny. It doesn't matter where you are in the country you're going to hear about muck. And everyone has a really negative, passionate position about muck. But I don't think a lot of us really understand what it is, why it's there, and what's going on with it. So that's why today we wanted to bring on our special guest, Dr. Mike Allen. He is an IFAS professor and a very distinguished colleague within the university. So Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jay. I'm happy to be here. So, Mike, start off by telling us a little bit about why you're an expert in this area. So what is your career and how did you get to this place? Well, I'm a fisheries biologist by training and I've been at UF for 25 years now. So I've been working for a long time in Florida and most of my career has been in freshwater systems. So a lot of work in lakes and streams all around the state. Um, and now I'm over in Cedar Key at the Nature Coast Biological Station, and I'm doing more marine stuff, but I still have a passion for freshwater systems, and so I look forward to the chance to talk about lakes and that kind of thing. Well, when I first met you, you were already at Nature Coast Biological Station, so I've only known you as a marine guy, but then everybody that I work with is like, oh, Mike Allen, bass, Mike Allen, fish, limnology. I'm like, are you sure? We're talking about the same Mike Allen, right? back to my roots. Yeah, so I welcome the chance to talk about lakes. This is great. (laughs) Well, fantastic. Well, so before we get started, Mike, I've got a, a, a personal question for you. So I know you're a passionate angler. Uh, You've been fishing for your entire life. But what is the most memorable fish you have ever caught? You know, there's so many different types of memories in our lives, right? But when you ask that question, the first one that comes to mind is the biggest bass that I ever caught, which was a 14-pound, 12-ounce bass I caught with my buddy Porter Hall in Mississippi. Um, At the time, I think it was the third largest fish ever caught in the state. And the credit goes to him. I was on his boat, but uh, it was a fantastic fish. Did, did he say stand right here and cast right there? <laughs> no, but but it was definitely with his uh, with his help that I was able to get that fish. But it, he's a longtime fishing buddy, so it was really fun. Well, I was ex- uh, expecting you to say, oh, it was one time with my kids or one time with my wife, but you chose just a big fish, right? Well, I did, but I tell you what. This summer, I had I took my daughters out snook fishing, and it was one of the best fishing experiences I've ever had because the girls caught snook. And so I was kind of torn, but we're talking about lakes, so I told the bass story. The likely story. <laughs> had to bring the family in on the back end after he was prodded. <laughs> All right. Well, Mike, thanks for that. Well, let's kind of get started and dive into this, right? So, Muck, what is it? it we Everybody hears about it. Everybody talks about it. But what is it? Yeah. So muck, well, 
you'll hear a lot of different definitions out there. But the way I think about muck, particularly in Florida lakes, but in any lake up, even up in northern uh, lakes up in the Midwest, um, it's a sediment type that is based on lots of organic decaying plant matter. That's basically the short answer for it. So it can be very fine and it usually has also chunks of vegetation pieces in it. Um, but it is a highly organic um, sediment that originates from plant material mostly. So that's the way I define it. Okay. So that's what it is. Now, the question, though, that we're always getting, it's always in a negative connotation. So if it's from plants, it's natural. But is it bad? Do lakes need it? What what role does it play, good, bad, or indifferent? Yeah. So great question. So, you know, muck in itself is not necessarily bad. It's a question of how much do you have and what's causing it? And is it symptomatic of a larger problem in in, in lakes? And so, for example, a lake that has, you know, two or five percent of the shoreline has a muck type sediment. That's not a problem at all. But in lakes where you end up with a lot of muck all around the shoreline, then we run into some real habitat problems for fish. And um, and unfortunately, some of the modifications that we've done to lakes foster that kind of development. And that's a lot of along the lines of water level stabilization, channelization for flood control and those kinds of things that prevent lakes from fluctuating in water levels a lot. And that that causes dense vegetation to form in the shoreline areas and those deposit muck. So because the lakes can't go up and down like they used to due to hydrologic modifications, um, then the muck can really become a problem and can take over the inshore littoral areas of, of lakes. So, so connect that again. So back before we had stabilization, what was the scenario and what did the muck profiles look like back then? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. So, so muck is a, it's a natural process, right? It's decaying organic material that's resulting from plants. And a lot of times the plants we're talking about are native species, um, like pickerel weed and cattails and those kinds of things. So they're not necessarily non-native species. But historically, if you take um, some of the major lakes in Florida, like the Kissimmee, Lake Toho, Lake Okeechobee even. Um, those lakes, when we would go through drought and wet periods due to hurricanes and drought, they would just change their surface area substantially. So muck always happened in these lakes, but the surface area of the lake used to change by 30 or 40%. And so the, the floating vegetation that creates a lot of the muck sediments would actually get on high water periods, it would get transferred out to the watershed. And, and actually the lakes kind of self-clean themselves because of water level fluctuations. But when they would come back down, you would have firm bottom, not so much organic material because that stuff was up up on the hill from the from the high water period. And I guess even during like the hundred year droughts, you would have a lot of it exposed and I guess it would just blow away Absolutely. too, right? Yep. And some lakes, you know, we have natural processes in Florida where some lakes, some of our shallow prairie style lakes go completely dry. And that when that happens, those sediments would oxidize and a lot of them just go away and, you know, it, they, they, they're not a problem anymore. So, so really when I think about muck being a problem for fish habitat and for lakes, a lot of times it's because we've modified the water level regime in the lakes and you have a stabilized water level for flood control. So for example, Lake Kissimmee and Lake Estepoga, those are two major lakes in South Central Florida. 
they fluctuate basically the same meter or so every single year due to flood control. And so what happens is that vegetation starts growing in on the littoral zone and there's nowhere for it to go. You know, it just and it creates more and more deposition of organic material and, and that kind of thing, which which then creates some habitat problems. I can talk about those next if you want to. Well, and, and to that point, I, I want to say, isn't it Lake Istapoga that at one time fluctuated several feet and now it's regulated to eight inches? Yeah, it's really it's really low. Yeah. And, you know, we've got houses and people's developments that are in the watersheds and the lakes just can't go up and down like they used to because of flood control risks. But um, that causes, you know, us to have to deal with muck deposits in different ways, like scheduled drawdowns and physical muck removal and those kinds of things. I was just going to say that about the development around these lakes and water bodies. I mean, if you think about our lakes and landscapes episode, what these lakes in Florida, what they've done naturally, they can't do that anymore. And so with the population where it's at and how how close to these lakes, some of these homeowners, for example, have their homes, the lakes have to, quote unquote, stay the same. But then at the same time, now we created different problems that we have to learn to understand and manage. And the stabilization is not something we can undo now. I mean, it's it's no. a fact of it's just a fact of Florida. Yeah, it's a hard it's hardwired into our system now. So we have to try, take other tactics to try to control it. So, yeah, it's a great point. So you mentioned habitat. So why does muck impact habitat? So muck sediments themselves have, um, they tend to be soft on the bottom. It's, a, it's decaying organic matter. There's a lot of respiration in the sediments, so they will go anoxic where the sediments don't have oxygen, just a few centimeters under, under the surface. That causes hydrogen sulfide, the rotten egg smelling sediments that you might smell when you drop an anchor and pull it back out and you can smell the bottom coming up. A lot of times that's, what, that's decaying organic matter that has gone through uh, anaerobic process without oxygen. So that swamp smell. Exactly, the swamp smell. Um, And so that's really uh, common. And as far as fish habitat goes, you know, as I mentioned, a little bit of muck is not necessarily a problem. The, The problem is when the vegetation, you get these floating islands that are depositing lots and lots of organic material to the bottom. And I really think it's a combination of not just the muck sediment on the bottom, but the floating plants above it too that are blocking light. And so you get these can be large areas of the lake that basically have no oxygen or very little dissolved oxygen underneath the surface of the water. And if you go measure the oxygen, it's like, it'll be like near zero, even in the middle of the day. So you basically have all that rotting. The, the, the muck is trying to rot, but it doesn't have enough oxygen to rot. Then you compound that with putting floating plants on top, capping it so that there's no diffusion of oxygen in the water from the air. So I guess the oxygen, it, and it just goes down, 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 down then. Yep. yep. And then there's no light entering the water. So there's no photosynthesis going on in the water column. And so you don't have oxygen in the water column. And so so that's really where we get into the big problems with fish habitat. And there there will be fish that can live in that stuff, um, the killifishes and gambusia and stuff that are mainly air breathers that can breathe off the little thin layer of oxygen off the surface of the water so that a gulp right on the surface can take that oxygen. They're also really tiny fish. So they're little fish that can live in very dense areas that don't have oxygen. And it's a nice refuge for them because there's not many predators because the predators can't live there because they can't breathe. But 
Um, when it when it gets to where it's a large portion of lake littoral zones, then you really can get lake wide habitat loss due to to muck deposits in that floating vegetation. So do the fish avoid areas with muck or they just avoid areas that are super low oxygen because of the muck? I think it's more the latter. Now, I do get a lot of questions from anglers about, you know, muck sediments tend to be soft. They tend, they're degrading. They're kind of, they're, they're not like sandy, hard bottom spots. And people have asked a good question a lot of times is, can fish spawn on those habitats? Most of our sport fish are nest brooders, like all the centrarchids, crappie, bluegills, bass, all those species of the centrarchid family. Um, and they want to build their nest on a good substrate. But so a lot of people think, well, if you have a lot of muck, the fish won't even be able to spawn. But that's not what I've observed. That the fish are amazingly good at finding a place to be able to build a nest. And they'll build it on a dead root that's laying on the bottom. They'll build it on live lily pad tubers that are on the bottom. They'll they'll build they'll I really think in general, it's not as big a problem for nesting per se as it is the survival of the young fish due to habitat limitations in areas that have oxygen loss. So I think it's really more of a problem later in the life cycle. Even though we 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 like to think that we want hard sandy bottoms and the fish can spawn there, the fish really usually will find a way to spawn, but the juvenile habitat suffers when you have a lot of muck. Yeah, so it's this sort of long-term impact that's kind of hard to see in the moment, which I think is where we see these questions come up in public meetings or with particular stakeholder groups, because it's like, I'm not seeing the issue right now. But for example, the management kind of has to be considered right now so that those impacts don't happen a year, five years from now um, to the system. Because like we said in our Lakes and Landscapes episode, Florida lakes want to turn into swamps and then they want to turn into the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And the way that we want nature is for it to stay in the way that it is now so that we can continue to enjoy it like we do every Saturday, right? So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. kind of like the juxtaposition of it, right? We want what it doesn't want to be anymore. We want a time capsule. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that's right. And Mike, I, I like what you, what you just said about fish spawning, that they'll find a way. Uh, I, I've always found it interesting in any biological system, people will say, this species wants X, right? They want this one thing. But you've observed fish, some of them want sand, some of them want stumps, some of, within the same species, right? So there is tremendous diversity. To, so to say a largemouth bass must have this or will only end this scenario, that's just not how any no. biological creature is gonna act across no. a huge population. Yeah, that's right. They're much more adaptable than that. And not to say that it's not a serious concern for the fish population, because it can be, but it's usually not a spawning habitat limitation issue in most cases. Okay, so is there any good that comes from muck? Is there any creature that utilizes it? Well, yeah, and as I mentioned, like some of the killifishes and stuff, that's like optimal habitat for them. So small um, top minnows, killifishes, um, gambusia that that can use those kind of really low oxygen habitats. And there's actually a fairly diverse set of species that would use that habitat. Um, flagfish, um, sailfin mollies, quite a few little fishes that use that stuff. What about invertebrates that are in the system? There's a lot. Yeah, it's a there's a lot of invertebrates in that 
in the system. Now, not so much in the anoxic sediments. Those can actually be more devoid of invertebrates, but around the vegetation and on the surface of it, there will be a lot of, of invertebrates. All right. So when we have a balanced ecosystem and there is muck, but it's not too much, we have oxygen mixing. So that's when we're going to see crayfish and worms and things like that. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And and a little bit of it, you know, small amounts of floating islands are actually really good fish habitat because they're not so extensive that you lose oxygen underneath them. There's light around them. So, you know, it's you run into bass fishermen. I'm a bass fisherman myself. And they're like, man, I love fishing those little floating islands. And they'll go up there and flip the crawdad in there and catch catch bass. And that's true. You know, a little bit of it's good. The fish get up under there. It's shady. As long as it has good oxygen, it's good habitat for adult fish and everything's good. The, the problem gets when we have thousands and thousands of acres of contiguous solid matted vegetation that's causing muck deposits underneath. And, and then you get large areas of a lake that don't have oxygen and really are devoid of fish habitat for most of the fish species that, that support fisheries. So if we're in a situation where there is just acres and acres of cattails dropping hundreds of pounds per year, thousands of pounds a, a year of this sediment, so how far away from the cattail population are you going to have bad conditions, quote unquote bad conditions? Because is it like sucking oxygen out from the other part of the lake that's not got all of the muck in it? Or what does that you know, look like? I'm sure that happens to some degree, but what I've observed in the field is that once you're in open water immediately adjacent to these areas, you the oxygen will be okay. So it's I think they do pull some oxygen, but it's really the, the area that doesn't have light penetration, that has heavy surface coverage of vegetation, that kind of stuff is where you you really lose the habitat completely. And outside of that, there could be submerged plants and other types of plants that are really good habitats. So, you know, just having some floating islands, tussock habitats, we call the floating islands tussocks, just having those kind of habitats itself is not necessarily bad. It's when it becomes too much, like, like so many things in, in the world and habitat, you know, if a little bit's okay, too much is really bad. So... Yeah, the whole it depends that we keep saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it's complicated. Yeah, of course. So what happens if you, quote, get to the place where you have too much muck? What, what, what do you do? I mean, is there any solution? It, since water levels are stabilized, we're not going to have this, you know, six, eight feet of fluctuation in a given year. So what do you do? Yeah, it is a really difficult problem and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission has done a good job over the past 30 years I believe in learning and developing new methods for dealing with this. A, a couple of ways are um, cookie cutters to chop up some of the islands and the idea you're, you're still having the vegetation go in the lake so there is some muck deposit but if you lose the island you lose the like long-term deposit of material over you know weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, and that, if you break up those islands, you have more light penetration and less, you know, habitat loss due to oxygen. So that's one way. Um, the best way to do it, though, really, if you get a lake that has a substantial amount of the littoral zone that's impacted by muck and floating islands and that kind of thing, is to do a drawdown. They do, do a drawdown and get the water off of it. And some of the projects that 
the FWC has done in the Kissimmee chain, for example, and we did an evaluation of this was the first project I ever worked on in 1997, um, is they draw it down and then actually go in with equipment and scrape the littoral zone and get that organic matter out of the littoral zone and pile it up and then bring the water level back up. So a hard reset. Yeah, it's a hard reset, but they've had really good success and they've also um, experimented a lot with trying different targeted herbicide applications to keep those islands from forming again, which is a good strategy when there's not a lot of them and you can go in and target those areas and just keep it from getting to be a big problem um, after it's been drawn down and, and the muck's been scraped off the bottom. So, so you know, that is really the the biggest intervention that you could do um, given the, the constraints we're on as far as water level. You know, ideally what we'd like to do if you only cared about the lake is flood the whole thing and make it get a whole lot bigger and let that stuff drift away, but we can't do that because of flood control. So, so drawdowns are a big, are a big tool, but, but they're hard to get in place because drawdowns impact people too. And they make docks inaccessible and boat ramps inaccessible and those kinds of things. So, so, um, you know, it can be a difficult process to get a drawdown approved and go through all those steps, too. So it's a it's a major intervention to do that. But it is one of the more successful things that have been done on large scale problems. Well, and I assume to do a drawdown, you have to start with some very lengthy permitting, right? Because there's got there's a lot of environmental impact you there have is. to take into consideration. There is. I mean, and it, and it includes everything's like nesting birds and, and uh, you know, it's not just fish in these habitats. There's a lot of reptiles. There's a, mammals that use floating islands. And, and um, so it's a, you know, there's some uh, some species of special concern. Some of the salamanders and things that are are uh, that use those same kind of dense habitats. So there's a lot of process to go through to do a drawdown and do that big of a lake, you know, modification. And not to mention, you start with several million dollars and just go up from there to bring in all the equipment. And yeah, in most cases, those kind of projects have been done on the major lakes like Lake Kissimmee that has really lost a lot of the littoral zone. East uh, West Lake Toho, I think they did a recent one in East Lake Toho. So some of the major lakes where really you you stand to lose a lot of the littoral habitat and they'll go through and try to do that to fix these large systems that are such important fisheries. So there's millions of dollars. There are homeowners that are disenfranchised from the lake that they've purchased property on. There's tremendous wildlife impacts all for a long-term gain that we're hoping to get. So what, what, the root of the story then is we need to prevent muck from becoming a problem because fixing it on the back end is a real issue. So considering all of the constraints that we have, how do we best prevent the muck from becoming a problem? Well, I think the best thing is to, you know, it's a lot like some of our plants like uh, water hyacinth and management of water hyacinth. And the way we what we manage water hyacinth is we try to get it early and keep it from getting too too high coverage, right? Because then it really is expensive to control and difficult. I would say the same thing for floating islands and muck type habitat is that try to control it either with herbicides or a cookie cutter that chops chops up those islands while it's still in relatively low concentrations in the lake, not a huge area, before you get these major problems that limit your options to more of the, the drawdown and muck removal type projects. 
Yeah, this this reminds me of the episode with Dr. Sperry where he talks about low-level maintenance control or proactive management. And so keeping up with it lets it not ever become this giant problem. So that's that's what you're hearing right now. Well, and if you keep that water open, lakes are really good at taking care of themselves. They just need a little bit of help every once in a while. Yeah, especially when we're living right up next to them or hanging out on them every weekend. It's, you know... Yeah, goes without saying. I, and I would guess oxygen is probably one of your greatest tools to fight muck. But in order to have oxygen, you've got to have that water open and it's got to be good quality water. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't have acres and acres of surface matter vegetation and no oxygen, which then just feeds on itself and encroaches further and further out into the lake. Right. So it's trying to control it at the lower um, at the lower uh, coverages is the way to go. So these floating islands, for example, water hyacinth covers the top of the water for, for y'all listening and then blocks the sunlight from penetrating down to the bottom of the lake where that muck is settled or, or building up. And so does water kind of need to have that openness to kind of breathe, so to speak? Is that kind of a way of thinking about it? Or what is this kind of process? I think very simplified for us, right? Uh, people like me who didn't study this. How does that kind of play out? Why is that important? Sure, Christine. I, I think it's... Um... There is some part of it that is a amount of openness and water movement into areas. It pl plays a role, but I think the biggest role is surface water that has sunlight. So it's light penetration and the, the ability for phytoplankton, which is the microscopic algae that's in the water column, that needs light to be able to produce oxygen during the day. And so when you have open water mixed in with floating islands, you get enough oxygen to create good fish habitat. When it becomes solid tussocks and all the islands go together and you lose whole areas, then you lose oxygen underneath, mainly due to a lack of light penetration. So we talk about keeping these floating islands at smaller levels, right? Not that they don't exist at all, right? Because you've mentioned that fishermen in particular enjoy these floating islands, fishing them. But we also know that we got to keep them at lower levels so that they don't become large mats and huge problems within the lake. So how do we kind of balance that situation? What does that kind of look like in management? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and it's been a big challenge for the management agencies. But, I, you know, one of the best options in a case like that where you have, you don't have too much floating islands and you want to keep it at bay is to do some targeted herbicides on some of these islands. And I recognize, I've talked to a lot of fishermen and, you know, these can be excellent places to fish. Sometimes they have the biggest fish in the whole lake or underneath these islands. And a lot of times the islands are small, you know, even square meters or less than a quarter acre in size. And they're great for fishing because there's good oxygen around them and the bass want to get underneath them. And, you know, that's where people want to go fish. Um, but from a management standpoint, if we know that too much is going to cause large-scale habitat loss in the lake, really the best strategy is some targeted herbicide treatments in that to just try to keep, kind of set the clock back slightly. Um, my recommendation would not be to spray all of them, but to spray some of them and try to keep them from forming those large mats that eat up a lot of a lake shoreline and littoral area. Yeah, just that steady management that keeps yep. things in check, that keeps things yep. in balance. Yeah, instead of waiting for it to get bad, and now we have a big problem and we have to do a year-long drawdown and a muck removal and millions of dollars and that kind of thing. So it's that, you know, that is a good option to avoid that scenario. Well, and meanwhile, you know, how do you make the point that we're going in here to manage plants 
to prevent all of this muck building up on the bottom when we've got 150 acres of dead, rotting plants that you can already smell as you go by them and go, no, there's nothing to see here, guys. Trust me, this was in the best (laughs) interest of the lake, right? It's that constant maintenance, keeping things at at a reasonable level. That's when the lake stays the healthiest. It really is. It really is. And because none of us want to have to go in and do whole lake, you know, herbicide treatments or whole lake drawdowns. I mean, those are major perturbations. And if we can do them a little at a time to just keep it, think about it like a haircut. And it's just the maintenance of getting your haircut and keep it at a reasonable level, then you're in that you're in a better place. And it costs a lot less, too, because it doesn't cost as much to do those small herbicide treatments that are targeted. And um, and if you can you can maintain the lake and the FWC has done a lot of that after some of the drawdown and muck removal projects on the Kissimmee chain and Lake Estepoga is they implement a very uh, deliberate uh, program of airboat application of herbicides to knock the small areas back and keep it from getting in those large mats that are going to lose a lot of habitat. Well, Mike, as we wrap up here, is there a central theme or a thing you want to leave our listeners with? Well, I appreciate the chance to be here. And I think that, you know, muck habitat in itself is not a disaster for a lake. Some, it, it, a lot of times it's actually an indicator of a very productive lake that grows a lot of plants and has a lot of nutrients. So just having some muck habitat, a lot of times some the very best lakes for fishing in Florida deal with muck habitat. So it's not like it's a death nail to have some muck in the lake. It's And really the challenge is just how do we manage it so that we don't end up with large-scale habitat loss. And that's that's the that's the best advice. And I think that um, that's what the management agencies are doing. And I think it's good if anglers, you know, understand that motivation and that's what they're that's what they're trying to do with these kind of applications. Well, and what I've learned today is that muck is a totally natural thing. And like you just indicated, it's not in and of itself good or bad, but it can be an indicator of things that are going bad. Right. If you've got too much and you've got this water starting to close in, now we have a situation of which muck is playing a role. It is not the central problem. It is a result of a problem. And that's what we need to be keeping our mind on. It's not the muck. It's the habitat. And if you manage for one, you're going to manage for the other. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to say it. You know, the underwriting problem really in most of this is the lake level stabilization and the hydrologic modifications that we've made to the lakes. And that's what causes us to have this be a long term persistent issue that we have to deal with. Yeah, another sort of man-made problem that needs man-made solutions and and honestly some candid conversation about why management happens when it does. Um, This was us kind of tackling one of the more common questions that uh, scientists and environmental managers receive, whether it's in the public meetings or online. What is muck? Is it bad? What do we need to do about it? And so we hope we answered that question a little bit for you all today. Stay tuned as we uh, take a break and then start up our next season where we continue to tackle some more common questions. Um, Thank you so much for listening to Working in the Weeds. 